Good evening, Hope Bible Church. I hope that you're taking an opportunity to watch this on Friday night, Good Friday, of the Passion Week, as we often call it uh, in, uh, in churches today. Um, I wanted to just take a few minutes and spend a little time contemplating some things around the crucifixion. Nothing, uh, nothing new. Uh, these are the old, old stories that we tell over and over again, but hopefully it'll be an opportunity to have some, some insights tonight uh, that will spur your thinking as we continue on to Easter uh, on Sunday morning. Let me pray, and then we'll open up the scripture together for a few minutes. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the cross, and we know that upon the cross, the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ was shed on our behalf, and that we are covered by that blood. We can come into the throne room of heaven covered in that blood. We can approach you and we can call you Father because of that blood. And so we are so thankful for that. Father, I pray that you would help us to think deeply about these things over the next few moments and to remember those things as we proceed this week and into the rest of the year. Um, Father, I also pray continuing for your protection upon Hope Bible Church and that you would protect our members, especially uh, the more vulnerable among us uh, against this virus. Father, may we be reminded by the virus of the terribleness of sin and may we guard our souls as vigilantly as we are guarding our bodies in these days. Um, so open our eyes now that we may behold wonderful things from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I make no apologies for the fact that as pastor, I have the work of reminding. I just read a book about preaching recently, and it said that a pastor is, could be called a remembrancer, one who brings to mind important things. And we'll talk more about the importance of remembering for our Resurrection Day sermon. It is a struggle for humans to remember, and therefore we need to be reminded. As I said, these are stories that we need to visit over and over again, and the crucifixion is one of those stories. And on Good Friday, we focus on the events surrounding the cross of Christ. Execution upon a cross was one of the most painful and humiliating ways to die that has ever been conceived. It was painful, uh, which is obvious and established because of the beatings that preceded the cross and the nails that fastened a person to the cross. And perhaps the most painful part of crucifixion was asphyxiation. A victim slowly drowned in his own fluid as he pushed himself up against those nails in his feet and against that ragged cross just so that he could take uh, a breath. The word excruciating is derived from the word crucifixion. This was a humiliating way to die uh, in that a statement was being made. Yes, the victim was crucified naked right outside the gate of the city, but in his final moments he was forced to demonstrate his absolute submission to the Roman government. That's why crucifixion was especially reserved for, for, for very, very bad criminals and traitors. If you tried to rebel against Rome, crucifixion was Rome's way of demonstrating to all the people around, this is what happens if you try to rebel against us. 
Consider Jesus' command. He hadn't even died yet when he tells the disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And he's saying, just as you've seen those traitors traipsing through cities, carrying the the beams of the cross out to the hill just outside the gate, just as you've witnessed them demonstrate that submission to Rome as they go to their execution, so a Christian's life must be a demonstration of our submission to Christ as our final act in this life. There's no need to minimize the pain and the humiliation of the cross. But scripture teaches us that it was the God-forsakenness of the cross that scared Christ the most, that pained him the most. Consider the agony that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before the crucifixion. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus leaves eight of his disciples, but he asks Peter, James, and John to accompany him further. Undoubtedly, these were his closest friends, and he wants them to be near to him. And Mark says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word distressed can often uh, also mean amazed. What could amaze Jesus at this point? What could astonish him about his present circumstances? Perhaps he had never felt anguish like this. I don't think that we can fathom the anguish that Jesus Christ felt as he approached the cross. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He asks the the friends, the three friends, to stay and keep watch while he goes a stone's throw away. I believe that the anguish Jesus experienced in the garden was from the prospect of being separated from the Father. In order to remain obedient to his Father's will, Jesus had to be separated from his Father in heaven. And this was almost, almost too much for him to bear physically. I've often said that I am thankful to Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, for his insight that Jesus was the most dependent man who ever lived. He gives this example. Imagine this. You are sitting in a restaurant and you overhear two men talking. And one of the men says to the other, You just need to know that I only do what I see my dad doing. I can't do anything by myself. What would you think? You would think perhaps that person is very immature. You would think he needs to work on some life boundaries. Maybe he needs to grow up and become more independent. In John 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can only do, I'm sorry, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what the Father sees Him doing, what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Jesus lived constantly looking to the Father for direction. As a 12 year old, Jesus told the religious leaders in the temple, I must be about my Father's business. From eternity past, the Son had only known intimate fellowship with his Father. I would add that this is the life that we should seek to live in obedience to our Heavenly Father. This is the blessed life. 
This is the path that leads to glory. To say it another way, Jesus never in all eternity had been separated from the Father. We know what it's like to live separate from God, our Heavenly Father. We daily do things that break that fellowship. Our sin separates us from intimate fellowship with Him. Last Sunday, we saw the writer of Psalm 91 proclaim, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Jesus only knew the Father as shelter and refuge and fortress. He always dwelt in the Father's shadow. Think about this. Our normal was Jesus' hell. The worst thing in the universe is to be separated from God. Separation is death. When we die, our soul is separated from our body. When we die, we are separated from God. This is what Adam and Eve experienced the moment they sinned. One moment they were walking with God, living without shame and fear. They were at peace with God and with each other. The next moment after sin, they were ashamed and they were afraid. Yes, their sin would bring physical death. But worse, it destroyed their relationship with God. So much of the pain of sin is bound up in its effects on our relationships. That night, Jesus faced separation from his father. And the horror of that separation was almost unbearable to him. Luke tells us that the struggle was so immense that Jesus sweat drops of blood. And the father sent an angel to comfort him. Mark 14 records for us. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke says he went a stone's throw away from them. Had they not been sleeping, they would have certainly heard the cries of his distress. And remember, Jesus was a man in every way. He lived the life that you and I live. And in so doing, he only took advantage of those tools which we possess. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, God's word. So in the midst of such toil, turmoil, Jesus prays. He cries out to God using the term Abba. It's a term of familiarity. Jesus is pleading with the one from whom he has never been separated. This is the way he taught his disciples to pray. This is the way that we should pray. He tells his disciples over and over again, pray lest you be tempted. He knows what's at stake. Satan would have liked nothing better than for Jesus to have turned from this task. And he asks the Father to remove this cup. Father, you can do all things. All things are possible for you. Will you remove this cup? The concept of the cup comes to us from multiple places in the Old Testament. Old Testament writers speak of the cup of wrath that is given to someone or to a nation to drink. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In John 18, when Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus is able to say, Put your sword in its sheath. 
shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. To drink the cup of God's wrath in the scriptures means that God would pour out his wrath on a nation or an individual who had departed from him. Jesus knows that he must drink that cup. And implicit in drinking the cup is that God would remove his presence, his protective presence from him. Here is Jesus' prayer. Father, if it is your will, remove this circumstance. If not, I will endure it. I will continue on. And that can be our prayer today, even as we endure amid these trying times. Father, remove this trial. If not, I will endure in your strength. Thankfully, as God's children, we'll never have to drink the cup that Jesus drank on our behalf. Jesus returns and he finds his friends sleeping. The hour has come. Jesus' heart is set. He says, enough. He has made his petition to the Father. The Father has answered. He moves forward confident that this is the Father's will. As he does, he he does as he has done his whole life, he does the work that his Father has called him to do. And so the following day, as Jesus is on the earth, is on the cross for six hours, Mark tells us, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During that time, God the Father unleashed hell on his son. This was the cup that Jesus dreaded in the garden. The one who had lived in a perfect relationship with his father now experienced alienation and separation. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve endured that shattering of that relationship. And Jesus endured it to a far greater extent. What is astonishing is that he endured out of obedience rather than a consequence of disobedience. He cries out this time, not to Abba, but to God. John records his last words on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a a, a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As you know, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The great symbol of the divide between God and man is removed. The separation is over. Jesus endured separation so that we can have access. He endured alienation so that we couldn't have reconciliation. As we saw last year in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why does Jesus go through with it? Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus made loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him. How was Jesus heard? He was saved from death 
by being resurrected. Jesus proceeded from the garden to the cross with the promise that Jesus, that, that the Father would raise him from the dead. The Son trusted the Father even as he endured the cup of God's wrath. Jesus has endured the greatest suffering imaginable, and in the midst of it, he did so trusting the Father. The worst thing in the universe is to be separated from God. Adam and Eve endured it from the moment they sinned. Every human being, including you and me, have known that separation. And Jesus endured it on the cross for our sake. God in Christ on the cross reconciled those who are alienated from him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for these truths. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ endured the pain and the humiliation and the cup of your wrath upon the cross in our place. Father, I pray for those who may be hearing right now that they might would, if they've never done so, trust in that truth for the first time. And Father, I pray for those who know that truth and who are thankful for that truth, that we might carry that truth with us, not just this weekend as we contemplate these things, because that's the time of the year when we contemplate these things, but as we go forward into April and May and June and for the whole year. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.